Hey Sassensires, welcome you to this episode of our show. My name is Vladhu and today I'm talking to Wissam Tabara. Now, this episode is extremely useful for those who are building their first SaaS startup. It is also helpful for those who are building the second, third or multiple startups in a row because Wissam is laying the foundational truth, sometimes uncomfortable truth, about building your MVPs, validating your idea before you write a single line of code. Just check out the short clip to get a taste of our conversation today. So you usually start with a problem phase, right? And the mistake that often, first time usually entrepreneurs fall into, that they want to solve a problem, but they're not very flexible with how they want to solve it. I've yet to see a startup that from the day it started, and if it made it far in product, let's say V1 or it raised or you know, it got a lot of adoption, where the idea is the same and it has not been refined over time, right? If you will be taking notes as well as I do during the episodes, you'll have multiple pages of to-dos and to-bes to implement. So I recommend you to listen to the full episode right after this short sponsor segment. This episode is sponsored by the SaaS Insiders Studio. We help SaaS founders build their minimum viable products, MVPs, launch quickly, find a product market fit, and grow from there. SaaS Insiders Studio works with non-technical founders that are on the pre-seed or seed stage to help them execute on their product vision. To learn more, go to my LinkedIn profile that you can find in the description to this episode and shoot me a direct message there. All right, let's jump straight into today's episode. Plus Insiders, I welcome you to this episode of our show. Today, I'm joined by Wissam Tabara. He's a founder and CEO of Truebase. Today, we'll be talking about his company, how he got to the stage where he is, and also discussing some of the topics that are really important to you, which is how do you build your MVP from your idea? How do you take it to the market? And what are the next steps you should take as a SaaS founder to lay the foundation for success? With that said, Wissam, I welcome you to the show. Happy to be here, Vlad. Thank you for having me. For those who might not know you yet, if you could give one or two minute introduction of who is Wissam, where you're coming from, what you're currently working on right now. Yeah, happy to. I've been doing startups for a while. I started my career as technologist in Microsoft. And, you know, that's like back in the days, 2006, 2004. And started with Ad Center. It was like the new branch. And and everything was going really well for me there. You know, I was like growing on everything. All the measure of success, my team is growing, my getting great reviews and everything from compensation and everything else. And in five years, I was having like, you know, a great career at Microsoft, but something was not right there for me, right? So it felt like I needed change and it didn't take more than a call from a friend to go start a startup. And that was Simform. And that was actually our, over five years, we went and built the startup. And we we took it far. We we raised you know a lot of money in funding, and we got acquired five years after. And since then, you know, acquired a lot of skills to 
and network to really go and and you know be able to stay in the startup world over time i had the chance to participate in four so far and i was blessed to be part of two exits i had my ups and downs and i carry a lot of scars on me and a lot of learning i also spend a lot of my time this is what i love to do and like mentoring and helping other founders as well so i get to learn and really share the two cents or the mistakes that i learned with others as well currently i'm working at a company called truebase we have, like most startup even though you've done it before each startup is a new beast <laughs> it's a new setup it's a new market it's a new learning and that's i think a lot of the appeal of being in a startup happy to tell you more what we do but i want to tell you we've done three pivots over time tons of experiments a lot of customer discovery and the journey today you know we have raised our seed round we have 12 employees we launch our product and we're signing up customers as well as we go so things are working well but definitely it was a journey to get here got it got it. that's pretty inspiring it also tells me that like every every new journey is something different because you've been a part of two exits already and still when it comes to pivoting it still means that every time you come with a learner kind of mentality you're trying to to learn the industry that you're in i'm curious if you could give maybe a couple sentences of intro for Truebase, because we have a lot of SaaS founders who are also curious about this, but also a lot of VCs that are listening, it might be interested to having some more conversations. So could you give a couple of couple of sentences describing what Truebase right. is currently doing? Yeah, happy to. So Truebase helps you discover new customer efficiently, right? Like the best analogy I can give you to explain Truebase, imagine you open up the Netflix app tonight, and you're looking for a movie and they give you 50 filters, right? Like pick a movie by genre and keyword and actor and all of that. Like it's, it's, it's very tedious. Well, that, that's what prospecting is today. If you're a B2B company trying to discover new customers, you're sitting in on software like LinkedIn, filling up all these filters, running Boolean searches of the end and the or and the parentheses and all of that fun stuff. And clicking next for hours and opening up tens of tabs. And, you know, if you want to do your right, your job right, you're spending a lot of time researching the companies, personalizing, discovering their email, debouncing. Like it's a really like seven step journey. It's very, very time consuming. Even if you have hundreds of million dollars in the bank, you know, it's still a manual process to really go get that done. Where Truebase is, is basically the homepage of Netflix. So which recommend movies based on what you previously watched. And basically what we do is we we ask, we, we approach this a little bit differently. We like, who are the customers that bought from you, right? What are their websites? What are their LinkedIn URLs? They might exist in your CRM or they might be in your product or whatever. We get those, you enter them in our platform and we build your ideal customer profile at scale. So instead of you and I think of our ICPs as a human, like, hey, here are the five things that are in this industry. This is the size of the company. We, the, the machine or the AI does it at scale. So it looks at hundreds of filters and it starts drawing commonality between them. So start looking into well, what technology they use, what are their topics mentioning on their websites, what pattern they have, what's their team formation, what's their website traffic, and it goes on and on to build something 
a recommendation list for you. And you'll be able to react in the recommendation list. You'll be able to swipe right and left on it. And the, every click you're doing in our app, our AI is learning and honing in to your ICP. So you really get to sit back and able to get those recommendations continuously. So you can really focus on what matter, which is really kind of closing more deals, interacting and engaging with the customers. I can totally resonate with the experience of if you're an SDR and you're trying to do some LinkedIn navigator search, it feels like I signed up to be a salesperson, not like a pilot to learn how to operate a plane, right? There's so many switches, so many turns, like how, how do I make this thing work? It's repetitive um, work. It's repetitive work is, is demoralizing, right? Like if any, we all had to do it, it's not fun. <laughs> well, I mean, you have to be on the phone selling to your prospects, not necessarily, you know, configuring the tool. I really like this application of AI because you're familiar with what's going on right now with, for example, ChatGPT and other tools right now, where it's like, let's apply them to things they're not supposed to be applied to. This is a really good one because it solves the real pain. And I can, I can totally feel that. One thing our audience is curious, SaaS and Cyrus, which is how do you approach the beginning of a SaaS journey? So let's say you have an idea, you have a problem you want to solve. You've got a customer target audience, you pre-validate, meaning like maybe you've got some, let's say, some people in the waiting list. It's time to build a product. Now, as you and me, we are more technical than the average person. So for us, the question of building an MVP is a matter of, well, building it. When it comes for a non-technical founder, you probably got this question a lot of times already, but as a non-technical founder, how do I how do I bring my idea as an MVP to the market? What kind of approach should go? What kind of resources I should be using? What's what's the mindset I should be I should be taking to to approach this? Great question. And that's the, the million dollar question, right? A lot. <laughs> well, you know, to start with is like like the most ex- the most expensive or scarce resource you have as a founder, right, is your time, right? Like you're almost like sitting on a on a ticking clock, and you really need to get traction, get to the next milestone. So where you apply your time is super important. And if you want to start from really the top, what's the definition of a startup in the first place? A startup, according to Steve Blank, will tell you like it's temporary organization looking for a product market fit. Okay, well, what is a product market fit? There is a lot of tools out there. You can go and, you know, chart it, put it. Like, so if you, if you heard of the business model canvas, it puts nine boxes. It, it puts your hypothesis out, right? Like, what is, what's the product? What's the value? Who am I going to sell it to? You know, what's the pricing? What's my revenue model? All of that. You can fit it all in one page. Now, you can take this business model canvas or the ideas you have, and you can almost like group them into a quadrant, right? Like you can say, well, this is a high risk assumption as of like, if I got this one wrong, I have no business, right? Uh, if that could be something you want to build, like is, is can I build this technology or will people buy it if I did? And there are other stuff that are like low risk assumption, but required maybe high effort. So you always want to start by de-risking the high value assumption with the least effort, right? That's kind of the mindset. And now it's all about running a series of experiments to de-risk that, right? And one way to de-risk is to build an MVP. Before to figure out what is the MVP, what do you want to build, you almost have to go through, through a cycle. 
and understanding what stage you are at. So you usually start with a problem phase, right? And the mistake that often first time usually entrepreneurs fall into that they want to solve a problem, but they're not very flexible with how they want to solve it. I've yet to see a startup that from the day it started, and if it made it far in product, let's say V1 or it raised or, you know, it got a lot of adoption, where the idea is the same and it has not been refined over time, right? So, so the idea you have from day one is a starting point, right? And you have to really approach this as a journey. And you have to be, you know, maybe true to the general problem you're trying to solve, but to be very flexible in how to solve it. So what does that mean? So a really good starting point is in the problem phase is to understand the problem, right? For example, whatever you want to build, it's a hypothesis at this point, right? You can go talk to a lot of people, have them do most of the talking and say, tell me how do you solve this problem today, right? And and you can even rate, it'll be like, is this problem really, is it a painkiller or is it a vitamin, right? What I mean by that, can they live without it, right? Or do they must have it? Or will, what's the impact it's going to have on them when you're able to, you know, when you provide a solution for it? So that's usually where you want to spend a lot of time. And the more you feel that your job became boring, as if everybody is telling you the same thing, this is the problem, right? You have landed on a problem and there is no efficient way to solve it then you can graduate to the stage two, which is a solution, right? Do you have solution interviews, right? And there you're now switching. You'll be like, you might have sketched something or you might build an MVP, right? Depending on the market or how able you're able to do it. Today, there's a really good solution where you can, you know, go mock up something and make it more interactive and you might get more feedback at scale, right? And that's where you start validating the solution, if that makes sense. There is so much to unpack here. So that's not I just made a couple notes. I want to summarize this for you so you can pick it up as well. To start, first of all, start with the risk in the high risk acceptance, meaning you take something that can take you out of business if you got this wrong and start with that. Because a lot of times founders focus on something that's like, let's, let me think about this, like unimportant, like minor stuff, like some small benefits, small features in my app, while the main problem is, is not addressed. The second is don't get attached to the idea or to a specific solution, get attached to the problem. I, I refer to it as like, almost like my startup is my baby, meaning that they're so you know, proud of this is my solution, while they should be obsessing about the problem itself. And, and that's what the, basically the, the pivot is, which is trying to, like my solution is not working, what's the better solution for this problem specifically? The third one is painkiller versus vitamin. That's very, very popular. Let's make sure someone has their like hair on fire as your customers, <laughs> they need help right <laughs> now. That's like right. limited, right? And uh, the second, the fourth is solution interviews as well. Like making sure that it, it's what they really want. I think I think with some, what, what you told is basically all those steps are just a preparation before you actually build something and you start you start testing it. A lot of founders spend 80% of their time building the MVP and focusing on that right. and, and skipping this part. While to me, it sounds like like this is the essence of it. This is the essence. Like you produce you all this preparation, all of this research before you build it. Otherwise, it's it's almost like jumping 
out of the plane and forgetting like how the parachute works. It's kind of trying to figure this out on the fly, which is which is fatal in the most in the most cases. True, true. And and you know, you with again going back to the time as the most scarce resources here. How many like I I don't love baseball, but I will do the baseball analogy. How many time you can bat, right? Like, the more iteration you can do, the more success or potential of success you have. When you start with the product building, right now, iterating, it's a longer cycle, right? You have to go and move a lot of things to keep an iterating and iterating, where in reality, you can de-risk the higher risk assumption. There are many methods you can do that. Like I'll list a few of them. You can go create a landing page and have people sign up on trial right? That you can do that within a day and you can validate that will people buy, right? So before you go build it, you can go say, will people buy it, right? You can go and I already mentioned like um, you can do the mock-up of an interactive mock-up and sit with a lot of people and say, hey, am I at this app solving the problem before even going writing one line of code? Right. So there's many things you can do initially to really have more confidence in what you're building uh, as you go. And that could save you a lot of time. Like I will tell you, like we, we've done a true base, many of that. And what we thought <laughs> will be super valuable, man, we got proved wrong. Right. Even and, and by the way, all this validation, you're still going to end up building and you're still going to be learning and proven wrong. But at least you're not spending time pivoting like a lot on a on a bigger pivot. It's more refinement than anything else. I guess you already trained your muscle of when you're proven wrong. It's nothing personal. It's just that the assumptions were wrong and it's time to pivot, not like, oh, my business is failure. Right. So, so the other, like to make this more complicated, especially for the, like to, to give the idea for the first time entrepreneurs is that you might be doing everything right, but the market around you is changing. Right. So what does that mean? So with Truebase, when we started, I just, I just introduced Truebase as a sales B2B prospecting. We started in recruiting, right? We've done a lot of that work for recruiting. We have signed up paying customers, build the product you know, figure out the go-to-market. We felt really good about ourselves. We start talking to investors. We start getting term sheets. And then COVID hit. And then everybody started laying off massive layoffs. And our world changed. So so there is that too, right? Now, luckily, we, we were able to weather all of that. And we pivoted. And I really like where we are right now. But there is the aspect of the unknown of the market. So you might do everything right and the market might be switching around you. I think they call this black swan event, meaning something that comes out of the blue. No one expects that. No, this is this will never happen. No COVID, like it wouldn't be possible. You know, like some some of the military things happening in the East is like it hasn't happened before, but there's a boom and it does. So True, true. But but like also there's other like I don't want to say I'm the only the, the only like like generative AI right now. Incredible opportunities. So so there's other like even positive things in the market that could eventually change your assumption and you'd be able to react to it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. A lot of tools that we're building without relying on AI. Now boom, this this technology is so available. If you don't use it, someone else will. So it's it's a right. matter of how do you how do you change your use quickly. There are a couple of things you mentioned here. I want to I want to 
like highlight, which is one sign up for trials before you build a product. Mm, um, right. I love this one. I always tell people I work with as, as founders is create a landing page before we build it. Let's get a few mm -hmm. signups. Like the worst thing that, will get, that can happen is you've got a waiting list of people that you can right. send emails to, right? So that when you launch, you don't start from zero. You start with people who are interested and you've got some sort of the pre-validation of, of, the, of the interest here compared to sitting almost like hunting, you know, for ducks. And then right. you launch, boom, and you start from zero. Like, where are the ducks? Well, you haven't prepared the land for them. So like, no wonder. And as for the mockups, well, when you say mockups, do you mean some kind of prototypes, some kind of like interactive, interactive demos? Yeah, interactive, like, you know, like all the Figma and, and of the world, you can go like draw things that looks very like high quality and you can link them together and you can run it on, a, on your iPhone app if you want and it will look like an app and you can show it. Like to only do a few things in order, but you really get an amazing feel like you're working with the product. You can you can turn that around in a weekend, right? And if that looks good and people are really nodding to it, then you can go build it. What do you think are the things founders need to be prepared for when they do launch the MVP? Let's say they go through this this process, they do their research, they prepare the MVP to launch it. What are the things that I would say? you were not prepared for when you first were launching your first businesses. What are the things that caught you off guard that you wish you knew when you launched it? Like I actually made the opposite mistake. I'll be like, I I waited too long. Right. Like I I I operate under the mentality if you're not if what you put out there you're not embarrassed enough by it, then you waited too long. By the way, MVP, most people refer to it as a product. But even for established product, we actually put an MVP every week. Now, any feature we want to build, we build it as an MVP. It does not look polished. We usually reiterate on it on the next few sprints, but it always comes out as an MVP. And by the way, the mentality of testing something before trying it out, that does not apply only for a new product. I'll give you an idea. Uh, we were trying to put like, and I didn't do this with the startup. I've done it with a different startup, but we were testing what... What do you want people to sign up with, right? Do they want to sign up with Google or LinkedIn or email only? Right? Each one is not much. It's like maybe, you know, three, four days of implementation, right? But we have 10 options. What do we use? <laughs> Which one would people want to use? So what we did, we actually put, we put the two we supported at the time, and we put the third one as an experiment. So when they click on it, right, for a small set of users, right, it was coming soon. They get the message, oops, this is coming soon, right? So you could have been iterated on this out of the 10 and figure out which one really people want, and that will give you more impact in your product. So, so there's like the mentality of how to build this and save time is not just for new products. It can carry with you for existing products as well. This is goal here. When it comes to the quote, if you're not embarrassed, when you launched, it's too late. I think it's from Eric Fries from Lean Startup, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, as for launching features coming soon, I think Buffer did it way before. If you know, Buffer is like a scheduling software for social yeah, platforms uh, now. Mm -hmm. But long before, I don't remember the exact feature, but they had that feature for something specific. And when you click it, it basically says like, oops, 
you got us. It's not, it's not out yet. Like, tell us what you want exactly for this feature to do. And people are giving feedback. So basically, just like you right. did, you, you validated this before you build it. So it's it's like a placeholder. I, I really like this like MVP mentality for every feature you do after that as well. How do you how do you look at customer feedback? A lot of times when SaaS founders launch the product, they're really proud of what they do because yes, this is my solution. I'm solving this world hunger problem. And they start getting negative feedback sometimes, which is people are subscribing, giving some, oh, it doesn't work, something else, unsubscribe. A lot of times I see people are not prepared for that. They look at this as, oh, it's not working. Maybe it's not a good fit. How do you treat negative feedback? The positive is, it's obviously, well, it strikes the ego. When it comes to negative feedback, when it comes to tough comments in your product, how, how do you navigate that? Yeah, well, it's also understanding the, the reality of startups, right? So at the beginning of the journey, you're going to attract the early adopters. Those are the technologists. Those are the ones attracted to shiny things. They are the one who wants to be on the cutting edge of everything. That's why they're giving you a try. So knowing and understanding that, and in reality, the they're going to try you out a little bit and they might or might not become your paying customer that are paying the bill in the long term. So just taking a reality check on that as a start, they get to play with a new product. You get to accumulate as much feedback as you can from them. So there is nothing personal there. This is like an experiment or a dating phase for on both ends. So there is really, you know, like nothing personal here. You're building a new product. There is no way you're going to build a product that resonates with, with everybody from day one, right? I have yet to see that happening. So that's part of doing business, right? You are iterating and you are learning. Now, what I noticed, especially with the early stage adopter, having the mentality where you are you know, like, hey, we are in the early stage. Like, don't sugarcoat it. Don't try to pretend you are somebody that you're not, right? They are here because you're new. They are here because you're a startup and they're taking a bet on you. So erroring out on, you know, like, we are in early stage, we'll fix it. In fact, it's an opportunity when something is not working for you to react and fix it, right? Because a lot of the confidence we build with our early stage customers is that not that things were broken, is that we were able to react to it and fix it and give them ETA and stay on it on a regular basis. So that's how relationships are built. And the other thing is like negative feedback is a feedback and you should be very much welcoming that, right? And, and that might feed into another pivot or refinement of the value proposition overall. So if you don't have... If you're in the entrepreneurial journey and you don't have very tough skin for rejection, that's going to be very tough for you to make it far, right? We haven't got to fundraising, but that's also another thing, big part of it where rejection or customers and all of that. The biggest, the biggest asset you have is your ability to really power through and, and yet stay true to the market and able to react to it fast. I feel like when people giving, for example, me too much good feedback. It's almost like, yeah, I can hear the positivity from my mother and my grandma about my product. That's that's fine. Tell me what's right. wrong with it, right? Let, let, let me fix that. Let me make it better because what's good about it, I know. I think a lot of times I find founders being almost like too close to their product. For example, mm-hmm. if, if you're working on your stuff for three months, six months, for a year, it becomes so, so obvious how it works, how it should be working. 
for you, it's a no-brainer. So when sometimes tells you your product is not user-friendly, your product is right. not intuitive, and you're like, how come? You know, it's so easy. I'm, I'm looking through this whole day. Like, it's so easy to navigate. I think sometimes we get biased because we're so close to the product working in the long term. Did you have that experience or maybe someone you were working with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and what I want to say, it depends on your product. Sometimes it's for some product, it's harder to get that feedback than the others, right? So I am really big on the scientific way of validating something. So I would love to like, you know, spreadsheet and stats and, you know, all that kind of thing. But sometimes it's really hard, right? And the reason why is, is it's not like you launch a product and now it's not like a perfect environment or perfect lab where you can run the experiment, right? Because you launched the product, while you're launching the product, you had issues, you're updating, adding features. And at the same time, you know, I don't know, it was a holiday weekend and people came in and they couldn't use it as much while you had a campaign running. So it's really hard to see through all of this and to run it in, in a really like experiment because there's so many moving parts. I always encourage other founders that I talk to will be like, don't underestimate, like it's the opposite of the literature out there, right? It's like, don't underestimate your guts, the anecdotal of this and how do you like feel and how do you think is going on? Navigating that and working on the unknown and able to come up with ideas and, and why this is happening to extract feedback as of reading between the lines it's critical and able to move the things forward. Otherwise, you're going to be bogged down into some academic exercise and you'll not be able to move forward. I think it also depends on what kind of market you're serving. If it's B2C, well, you can get 100 customers. Like if it's enterprise, how many enterprises can you get for a beta, right? It's one, that's good. That's really good if you <laughs> get one. So when it comes to feedback, sometimes it's like, it, it really depends on, on the product. So staying flexible, I think is, is key here. Exactly, exactly. One thing you've mentioned about toughness and about resilience is in the investment space. A lot of people have different experiences. Some of them have rebuilt connections with, with investors. So for them, it's a really warm intro and go from there. Did you have experience like the initially when you need to break through that ice? And what are the things as a founder, SaaS insiders need to be prepared for? If it's their first time raising money, if it's their first venture, if they don't have previous experience of exits. Like, what are the things they should understand when they enter this game? First time fundraising, there are like, there are common tactics you can do and will greatly increase your chances of fundraising, right? And I'll start by thinking about who do you want to fundraise from and what stage you're at, right? So obviously understanding the, the pre-seed stage, the seed usually, the pre-seeds, you know, the friends and family, people on your network, if you're coming from a corporate, is your VP at that corporate, right? They know you, right? They're investing in you. You're usually asking for little money and you have very little to show. So that's usually like the, the beginning, the friends and family around or, or more. But I think most people like, you know, they're either putting a little bit of money on their own or they're raising that. I don't think that's usually where most of the hang up is, right? As of like the, where it is, it's usually on the seed round for the first time founder, right? So this is like, now we're talking about super angels, micro VCs, you know, the first check. So it's like raising a seed round. Now it's maybe harder considering the economic situation, 
but it's usually it's like a three to six month journey, you know, for a first time founder, right? And if you, let's say you're raising like $3 million, the first one, the lead will take 50% of the time. So it might take you three months to find the lead, right? So now we've been talking about B2B prospecting and all of that and called outreaching. Investors are all about relationships. You have to have a path. I know Vlad, Vlad know, you know, John, an investor. If Vlad does the intro for me, if Vlad, if John thinks highly of Vlad, right? I have a way to go pitch John. That's how it works. So how many Vlad do I know that can make intros? And it gets a little bit harder, right? Because let's say I'll take about Truebase, right? We're raising a seed round will be, what are the VCs that invest in seed round? That is very important. A big mistake, people go talk to anybody with money. That's a waste of time, right? So who invests in seed round? Who invests in your space? And even when you narrow down on the fund, who is the right managing partner to talk to, right? If you, if there are four managing partners in a fund and you go with a consumer because Vlad know them and they're doing the intro, that's a wrong intro. You probably want to talk to Allison who's doing the B2B, right? So getting the right introduction is very important. Understanding how, what's important to the fund, right? Somebody will take the intro. They will not pass it to another partner because there is financial incentive for the investor to be part of on more established funds. So that's why getting the right intro is important. Okay. It gets to the golden standard of the intros, right? So let's say I have Allison. I identified Allison as a target for me. And I cleared out, this is another very important thing, cleared out that Allison doesn't have a conflict as if she didn't invest with similar companies before because that's one of the most embarrassing things. I put Vlad to make me an intro and then Allison quickly reply. It'll be like, oops, you know, I have conflict. What does that mean? I have not done my research as a founder. You clear all of that out. They do invest in a seed round. You know, you've done the research and that's quite a bit of research and you can get help on that as well. I always advise for that somebody to do the help. Otherwise you're spending your time on the wrong thing. And now you, there's a golden standard, right? The best person who can do this intro is a, a CEO that raised and turned money to this investor, right? That's like, let's call that to be the number one. Number two is the CEO that raised, but didn't turn money or never turned money for that investor, right? So you start working that list all the way and the bottom of the list is your next door neighbor or a service provider or whatever, even though they know them really well, but it's not, there is no weight on that intro that's being made. So very good hack on that. That's why I say the three to six, nine months, sorry, the three to six months cycle for fundraising is you reach out to all these CEOs who have raised or maybe turn around investment and you ask for feedback on your product. So you say, hey, here's what I'm working on. Here's what I've done. You just ask for 20 minutes of their time that you can call the outreach and you might get replies, right? Somebody will get, and, and you have now 20 minutes you want to, first of all, you will learn. Those are smart people that that's done this before. 
At the end of the call, if they walked away, you connected with them on LinkedIn and they think of you, you know what? I'm okay doing this intro, right? If I was asked. Why? Because, you know, Vlad is smart. He's working hard. He's thinking about it. They have a lot more to figure out, but I will not be embarrassed to do this intro. And remember, as a CEO, I'm not just doing, you know, the person asking me an intro a favor, also doing the VC a favor, right? Because they're all about deal flow. So I look good as a person doing the intro by doing that. That's a very important hack. The, the three most important thing, and if you want to do entrepreneur as a career, is obviously have enough financial stability so you're able to try this more, more and more. Have the skills and the expertise, but most importantly, the network. So if if this time the CEO couldn't do the intro for you, maybe next time they will. And that's how you build the network over time. Dustin Cyrus, if you, if you pick this up, this is a really comprehensive step-by-step -step list on how to approach a VC. And if, if you pay attention, you need to do all of this before you even open your mouth in front of the first investor. There's so much preparation. While I see a lot of times people giving advice, just, you know, get the list of 100 VCs and just do cold email. I'm learning from my mentor from the VC space. And he also tells that it's almost like a private club meaning like it's really hard to get in. They intentionally reject sometimes cold outreach because that means you have no idea how to network. You have no idea how to approach them, which tells them you might not be able to raise the next round because they're interested in taking you to the next round so that they can get valuation increase or the exit. So it tells them that you don't know how to make those connections, right? And God forbid you pitch it to someone who either has a conflict or just not a good fit. I heard stories from just blacklist you, and that's it. Like you, you, you have no idea what you're doing, so you're not welcome in that club anymore. It's true. And one more thing I want to add to that, Vlad. That's hundred percent true. It is private club. I will do a mental exercise, and it's. I think it's very true. I don't have proof for it. There is some Slack channel, text group. Like when you talk to, especially you know Bay Area investors, they talk a lot to each other, right? So. If you've done faux pas with one of them, right, you're almost doing it news travel a lot really fast and they can, that's a lot. They're very strong in figuring out the market dynamics on who's raising, who's hot, who's not. And you have to be careful with that. Really, really good advice. Really good advice. What we're speaking right now is a VC, right? It's venture capital. What's your take on angel investors? Is it exactly the same procedures or the dynamic a bit different? And what would you prefer as a first-time founder? Yeah, so also angel investors, like if you dissect that little bit, how many checks did I write per year, right? And what's the size of the check? So it varies. Like there are some people who don't write as many checks. There are some people who are very active, right? Overall, it's almost the same the same approach, you do want an intro, you do want somebody with weight to be able to vouch for you, but it's not as heavy like the three months to, to score the first lead, like the 1.5 million first check, right? If you're raising a 3 million round. It depends on the on the person. Sometimes like it's a five, they're doing like a 50K to 250K. I've seen angels doing half a million as well. So, and they're, Depending on, they're usually executive and large corporation with a lot of wealth, and they understand the space well enough that they're able to do that call without becoming the lead. The difference is that you have to do a lot of guidance on 
defining what the round is. They will not come set up what's the instrument you're going to use to, to do the fundraising, what's the valuation and all of that. So they might lean a lot more on you and you have to do the heavy lifting. But angel investors, in fact, we raised our seed round. We by design went to angel investors because like I could have done one or two VCs to, to raise like a 2 million round or could have done like 12 very reputable angel investors. They're all leaders at corporations that I would love to place my product there one day. And they have a lot of really practical advice. They're all like, you know, entrepreneurs and, and, and experienced. And I found that to be super rewarding, right? But again, it depends on the space and what you're looking for. So it varies from one, one use case to another. I think what you've mentioned here is as a first-time founder, sometimes all you think about is I have this target of this figure on a balance sheet. I just need to get that. I don't care who I raise for. I, I need to get 2 million. I'll figure out the rest. A lot of times I, I hear that investors is, is much more than just money. It's, it's also the expertise, the network, tools, the systems. And it's really important who you raise from because I heard some horror stories how investors get almost in the way of you building something if they have no idea what they've invested in. 100%. Yeah. Who do you raise from? And and when things are going well, right, that's usually where not the problem is. When things are going bad, that's where, you know, many startups like go under because, because of that, because like there's board issues, founder issues, a lot of problems start evolving. What you really want to try to do, and it's very hard, is you want to keep as much control, at least to the Series B, so you can have this ability to iterate faster and faster. And usually that comes to, to a board seat discussion. The more you're diluting yourself, the more you're raising, at, you know, the more you're giving board seats. And that could be so rewarding by having the right board member with you. But it also there's, there might be some drawback because there might be now more people that not able to see eye to eye and that might you know, slow down or hinder the progress of the company. Well, I know if we, if we just keep talking about fundraising, it will be a 12-hour podcast because just every time, like so much notes I'm making <laughs> here. When it comes to learning more about this, let's say I'm a SaaS entire, I want to learn more. What would be the resources you would recommend for me to get started with? Maybe some books that were very instrumental to your growth, maybe some communities, inspirational speakers. Where is the place I should go to learn about this? I will not be the best one. I've, I've read all the most of the books out there, like Eric Ries and Steve Blanks and, and, and many, many others. Super helpful, but I, I really think the best way to learn is from, I think podcasts like that will be super helpful because hearing founders, get in the founder circles. Like it's almost like if you look back at your calendar, right? Where have you been spending your time, right? Even on the social or whatever, who are you surrounded? That's I think where most of the learning because Vlad, as you know, there's two ways to learn how to swim, right? You can, you can take swim lessons. Or you can be thrown in the pool and you will be, you will have to learn how to swim to survive, right? The the latter is way more chaotic, but way faster to learn, right? I mean, if you want to say what's the best way to learn is to go and, and do things, have this bias to to for output and execute, right? Go build, go even if you have a job, go build an MVP, right? Put it out there, learn the most out of it. Go get 
feedback, go get rejection. That's how you learn the best, right? But also surround yourself by other people who took this journey and, and get a lot of their learning and listen carefully. Well, there is a cliche that your network is your net worth. But I think what it really means here is the best way to learn is from people who've just done it or just right. out of there. They're still kind of hot and dirty from the mistakes they've made. And they can share them in real life as it goes right now. Because I think like books are also quite good. But I think it's really important to see it through the lens of reality today. Meaning that if someone did it in the 60s, I think the foundation is really good. But when it comes to dynamics of the current market, sometimes it might, it might change something for you in terms of how do you apply this knowledge. Right, right. If you were to... If you were to take one big idea with some out of our conversation, like if I'm a SaaS insider and I only got this one idea, if this is the only thing I take away from this session, what do you think that that big idea is? As of like starting a new SaaS startup or? I mean, in general for our conversation, yes. As a SaaS founder to start a, to start a startup, go into investing out of the whole journey we described today. Yeah. That's the biggest like, thing. Like I will say something that worked really well for me is that I went and joined an early stage startup. I didn't do a lot of mistakes. And it's almost you get one, like most people in their career, if you want to take a year or two off as a founder, it's like you almost get one try, right? And if you don't do it, and the most mistake people do, they take that with the least preparation, with the least knowledge, least experience. They then move on. They, don't, they won't have the chance to do it again. And in a way, their, their dream is dead. Life happens, right? What I've seen better way is to fade into that, right? So what I mean is like join an early stage startup. The earlier, the better. They're able to, you'll take a salary cut, but it's not as big of a risk. Somebody who raised a seed round, somebody who raised like their pre-seed round and you grow with the company, you get exposure to the network. You're not taking a huge salary cut and you have an extensive learning. Go through the journey, soak it as much as you can and then go do a startup. You're not starting from scratch. You have 5x, 10x, increase your chances of success. Okay, so basically get, get into the water as early as possible so you can learn how to swim before the, the tournament be, comes. Be, before, you, before you start the tournament, exactly. <laughs> I see. Okay, okay. That, that's, that's really good. That's really good advice. If the SaaS founders, SaaS insiders want to continue learning, maybe from you, from your journey, maybe seek advice or add value to you in one shape or form, What's the best way to stay in touch and connect with you? We'll be putting links, the ones that you say, so whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, email, what are the best ways to reach out? LinkedIn will be the best way at Wissam Tabara. First name, last name, one word. That'll be the best way to reach me. You can connect with me. You can email me. I'll, I usually reply to anybody who, who reach out. I think one, one thing you've mentioned, I think off the air, we spoke about that you are also mentoring some communities. What are those communities for, for the record so that other people could potentially join if, if they're in, in the proximity? Yeah, I'm usually heavy with the Techstar Seattle. That's usually where I try to do a lot of the communication, but I often do coffee with others, right? And I'm able to, you know, uh, share the two cents. The schedule is a little hard, but I usually try to, to find some time to sit and share, you know, some of the learnings. Sometimes I'm able to also, you know, point them in the right direction without even ever talking to them. I believe in startup karma, right? Like a lot of people that helped me out when I was starting and I'm happy to help other out as well. I, I think like it's in every business. It's you have people a bit behind you and people above you. 
And you need to keep mm -hmm. that balance of always when you do once one one staircase up, you still need to kind of pull pull people who are behind you with you. And I want to applaud you for this mentality. This is this is this is phenomenal. As and Cyrus, we're putting links, we're putting LinkedIn for with some for you to connect. With some to conclude our conversation today, what do you think should be the final thoughts? What would be the note we should end our conversation on? Yeah, like, I mean, startup is a great journey. It's very rewarding, but it's also very challenging. And, you know, it's not for everybody. If it's something you want to pursue, think of it as a career. It's kind of like the, you know, you might not be successful from the first time. It might be not as rewarding. But at the very least, like, you know, get your priority in place and see what's important to you. And if that's a journey, it's very rewarding or it could be very rewarding financially in the long term. It's very rewarding on day to day, but it's definitely a stressful one. And yeah, that's like, well, I will maybe the final thought that I would leave with. Wissam Tabara, everyone. Wissam, I thank you so much for joining us on this episode today. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Sass Insiders, make sure to check Truebase. And we'll see you in the next episodes.